0: Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat Podcast. We are solution architects and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we dive deep, demystify technology and talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives in topics of interest. Hello, my name is Shane Baldacchino, and this is episode 76 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And joining myself today is a new voice for Tech Chat. Time zones are definitely not our friends. I think we're separated as much as we could possibly be, but I want to give a big Tech Chat welcome to Shai Paredne. Um, Welcome to the show, Shai. Thank you for having me, Shane.
1: I'm, I'm, you can tell I'm super excited here. I, I just jumped in. Uh, I'm just really excited to be here and share some of the awesome updates we have. Uh, and yeah, the, the time zones are definitely not our friends
0: they are definitely not our friends but look thanks uh for making it all happen here so look hopefully you've been listening to the show and you do realize i get everyone to sing a song on their first show so what are you going to sing today
1: so you when i saw that you you you, you brought that up i was trying to think of what song i can sing of, of all the songs that i have in my head and then i thought that if i actually did that you'd probably have a lot of post audio work to actually do just to even make it remotely listenable um for various reasons so i think Probably since we both have young kids, we'll save all that post-audio work for when they're older and we're retired.
0: So no baby shark. Nope, no baby shark today. No baby shark. All right. <laughs> okay. So look, speaking of announcements and launches, fresh from our special on EventBridge and AppFlow, we're going to pivot back today. So in this episode of Tech Chat, we're going to run through a raft of updates that have occurred in the last two months, that being September through to the end of October 2020. Newswise listeners, we all know there is always something to tickle your curiosity But the event that is fast approaching is reInvent, which given all the change thrust upon us this year, it's nice to see it's a free three-week virtual conference. And you know just to re-emphasize here, it it is free and available to all. So the usual keynotes from Jassy, Werner, Peter DeSantis, Monday Night Live will be there, plus an ML keynote, which will be the first to reInvent. So if ML is your thing, and let's be frank, it's almost everyone's thing these days, be sure to tune in. Shai, you know, what's your favorite part about reInvent? For me, absolutely, it's Monday Night Live. Always good to get a look under the covers of what makes AWS tick. So for me, it's really all the
1: knowledge that you can gain in really such a short period of time. And I think the proverbial fire hose isn't even a comparable a comparison here. Uh, it's more like a tsunami of information that you kind of like push through a pinhole funnel um, and really deliver it to you in like a curated bite-sized chunks. That's the best way that I can put it. Um, and it's not just the the depth that you get, but also the breadth, and, and it's just the fact that you can spend like an hour on containers, then jump in an, an hour on AI and ML, then an hour on security, then an hour on something else. Um, that's just awesome to me.
0: Yeah, look, absolutely, and I think the fact that it's online makes that a lot easier. You know, maybe that pinhole will, uh, you know, be the size of a hose. Uh, you know, bigger, make it easier to consume. So look listeners, November 30th to December 18th with registration opening in late October. And given the 18-day window, plenty of time to absorb these sessions with multiple language options available. And for those who are working from home or embracing remote learning, Reinvent is a great way, you know, to scratch that itch, and as I mentioned, no longer do you need to make the trip to Vegas. And for some like myself, you know, that's 3 days of travel that you know I'm not going to miss. So um, you know, absolutely can be enjoyed from the comfort of your home. But hey, look—we're here to talk updates, and boy, are there a lot we want to cover. So, Shy, some quick region and pop updates. So, region wise, we're still at
1: twenty-four with uh, South Africa and Milan recently coming online. But CloudFront has added quite a few edge locations in the last few months. There are now more than two hundred twenty with the addition edge locations in two new countries: New Zealand and Mexico.
0: So, more edge locations, and with. Each edge location we add, you know, it goes further increasing the reach of CloudFront and, you know, reducing the distance bits need to travel for end users who lever the service. And look, we've got a CloudFront update later on in the show. Okay, Shy, let's get into the show. There are so many updates. We're going to have to skim over some, make listeners aware, but we'll hone in on others. So let's start with a positive announcement and talk about some price cuts. So remember, folks, the flywheel effect at Amazon. You know, when a service launches, we know it's very MVP. We iterate. We listen to customers. As more users adopt the service, we're able, in many cases, you know, to achieve efficiencies of scale. And given the tinkerer you are, Shy, I would imagine maybe you've used IoT events.
1: So you know, Shane, it's, it's honestly a service I'd like to play with a lot more than than I have in the past. And I'm going to as soon as I pick up my Delorean from the shop. There's just so many. There's just so many possibilities with 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 IoT events. It just my head was exploding with all the things I could do at home, um, and I'm just thinking about different ways you can use that in the field. Um, and so, really, for our listeners, really think if you haven't used IoT events, it's a fully managed service, and it makes it easy to detect and respond to changes um, that are indicated by the IoT sensors or applications that you might have. So, as an example, you may want to use it to detect maybe malfunctioning machinery, uh, maybe things like a stuck conveyor belt, and so on right? Anything that has sensor data can trigger something to happen. You're really only bound by the imagination. Um, with AWS IoT events, you pay for each message evaluated. And in September, we reduced the current price per message evaluation at the lowest usage tier in AWS IoT events by 86% and introduced an additional usage tiers that provide higher discounts for workloads over 100 million message evaluations per month. There are a few more details of this announcement. So if you're using IoT events, I really encourage you to check it out.
0: Awesome. So Amazon Connect, a service at least in Australia that is gaining tremendous adoption, has had a price cut. It's not a global uh, price cut, but it's focused in one area of the world.
1: Yeah, it's actually, Shane, this is the second time in 2020 that Amazon Connect is announcing an outbound telephony cost decreases uh, across six regions in Europe. We're actually a bit behind reporting the news here, Uh, but from September 1st, uh, Connect had decreased the following outbound telephony rates in the EU, um, in Frankfurt and then the West in London. Uh, regions for the following six countries. So we have Portugal's by about 79%, Spain by 64%, France by 15%, Sweden by 14%, Australia by 12, and finally Italy by 1%. You don't have to make any changes. Um, it's as easy for It's an easy win for customers in Europe.
0: Yeah, and look, indeed, if you haven't used Amazon Connect and have been using any other IVR systems, you know, Asterix or maybe a more commercially viable one, you know, it's really quite simple to set up. And being, you know, deep rooted in the DNA of AWS, what I think makes Connect awesome is the ability to extend the platform. You know, a Lambda function here and there. And before you know it, you're going to be reading data out of your CRM. Lastly, on the cost front, not so much a cost saving, but you know read between the lines here. Listeners, this is a tool that is going to help you track down spend and anomalies in your account. So let's talk about a new feature shy. It's in public preview and worth taking a look at and that is AWS Cost Anomaly Detection. So finding erroneous costs can often be challenging and time-consuming process. Look, we all know that. But look, now you can receive anomaly detection alert notifications with root cause analysis. That's really important. So you can proactively take actions and minimize unintentional spend. And I think the kicker and the value in this, shy is the root cause analysis. Being able to hone in, you know, in what causes spend is key here.
1: Yeah, I think that's so important. I mean, there's so many customers that I work with that, that's really some of the hardest challenges they have is just understanding where that spend is coming from and, and trying to understand where the root cause is. So I'm really excited to jump in with this with them. I think they're really gonna benefit a, a huge amount from this uh, service as well. Um, and so behind the scenes, uh, what's going on here, right? There's a machine learning model um, and that is able to detect various types of anomalies. Uh, the AWS Cost Explorer uh, service has the click-through wizard for this. Uh, so what you're actually gonna do is, it's there's a few steps, uh, actually about two, firstly, you're gonna to need to create a monitor and there's four different types of monitors.
0: And this really guides the smarts behind the scenes on what you're looking for.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, so let's let's jump in, let's look at those four monitor types. So first of all, we have the AWS services. This monitor evaluates the AWS services individually for anomalies. So as you adopt new AWS services, this monitor is going to automatically configure, to, it's automatically configured to start and it's gonna evaluate the service for anomalies without you having to change anything in your con- configuration.
0: Okay, so if I'm reading between the lines here, this monitor type is going to detect new services that you previously haven't been using.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's really cool to be able to, the fact that you you have your environment, you use it as it is, and then when there's a new service that either maybe you deployed or maybe somebody else deployed and you weren't aware of it, um, you're gonna get the anomaly detection and it's gonna let you know. So yeah, really excited about that one. Uh, let's go on the next one there. So we have the, the linked member account. Uh, someone's a little different, right? So this monitor evaluates the total spend of an individual group, uh, sorry, of an individual account or a group of linked accounts. So this is really helpful if you want, if your organization needs to uh, maybe segment spend by team or maybe it's by product, by service or by environment, uh, which you then define by account. Um, this is a really good monitor to use for that one. Then after that one, we have the cost allocation tag. So if you're using tags, this is a really good one to start leveraging. It's very similar to the LinkedIn member account monitor type. And we offer this monitor should you need to segment, um, similarly by by teams, product environment events, uh, but you're gonna leverage tags to do that rather than different accounts. And so this uh, monitor type restricts to uh, to one tag key, uh, but also accepts multiple tag values for that key. So let's take a look at an example. Uh, You might have a cost allocation tag with a tag key of cost center, uh, which is one I see very often. And then there's maybe different tag values for that key, which again, just sometimes we see this. Um, and so one might be cost in, cost center engineering, then you might have cost center engineering, but with a capital E, and then somebody might put in co- cost center ENG for you know short for engineering. Once you select the tag key of cost center as your monitor, you can then select all these different uh, tags or values uh, to be evaluated together under that single monitor. The last one we have is cost categories. And since the launch of cost categories, uh, many of our customers have started using this service uh, to logically create custom groups, allow them to better organize their spend. So really, there's four monitors that you can use there, four different ways to uh, monitor your anomaly detection or your, your spend.
0: Yeah, really cool. And look, after you've created the monitors, you define an alert threshold. So in dollars, how often you want to be notified, You know, perhaps just daily or weekly. And you can change this if you find this feature, I guess, to be a little bit too chatty. So as you begin to see spend anomalies in the anomaly detection dashboard, you can dive deeper into each anomaly by clicking on each detection date. And you'll immediately notice three things. So you're going to see the root cause analysis. So regardless of how you configured your monitors, anomaly detection it will attempt to pinpoint the root cause of the anomaly by indicating the service. So, you know, maybe it's... Uh, I was going to say EC2, but I'm trying to think on the fly here of something a little bit more exotic, actually. Okay, maybe you've spun up those X1s or something like that. Who knows, right? There may be multiple root causes occurring at once. So in these cases, anomaly detection will provide the most prevalent of the two root causes. Anomaly detection is integrated with Cost Explorer, so you can graphically visualize the anomaly and perform further analysis as needed. And you'll notice the filters and data automatically configured based on the anomaly details. And lastly, as you evaluate your anomalies, you have the ability to submit feedback on each anomaly. This not only helps you keep track of which anomalies you've already evaluated, but it helps us, the anomaly detection, you know, team improve and to be more tailored to your assessments and preferences. And lastly, this is a free service, so absolutely worth taking a look at and you know, I could probably think of lots of customers who are always going, "Hey, you know, why is my bill so expensive?" And, you know, before having to, you know, dive deep and understanding, hey, you know, a self-empowered team has spun up, you know, X resources, etc.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can think of so many use cases with with the customers I've worked with, uh, you know, for the last uh, couple of years. Just so many ways that they could use this to detect, you know, is is are they using a service in a different way that they used before? Did they deploy a new service that they didn't think about deploying? Did somebody deploy something that they weren't supposed to? Um, did they configure it in a, in a different way that's not following the best practice? So, right, so really combining this with some of the other uh, cost management tools really gives you a,
0: a lot of power. Let's move on to compute here. So Shy, I'm a big believer in ARM and our Graviton2-based instances are now available in more regions around the world with our general purpose instances, the M6G, the memory-optimized R6G and the compute-optimized C6G available in US West, North California. RDS also see some Graviton2 love. Obviously though, being ARM-based, it's gonna be restricted to the database engines that support the ARCH64 architecture.
1: So yeah, Shane, I know in the past, you've covered the uh, Graviton uh, in past episodes, uh, but the Graviton2 M6G and the r 6 g database instances can deliver better better price performance over compatible current generation x86 database instances. You can actually launch these database instances with using MySQL um, and or Postgres, And with this launch, Graviton 2 is now supported on RDS MySQL versions uh, 8.0.17, 8.0.19, 8.0.20, and RDS Postgres uh, SQL 12.3 and 12.4. Support for Amazon Aurora and Amazon RDS for MariaDB is coming soon.
0: Yeah, interesting here that's supporting the, I guess, you know, look, it makes sense, the newer versions of MySQL. It would have been awesome to see things like 5.7, um, you know, very popular, but it is, you know, quite old. Um, But look, I gave this a test for a WordPress blog. You know, it has the same look and feel of MySQL. And you know, that's the point. Moving to ARM really isn't that hard. You know, we've spoken in past episodes, but if you are leveraging a compiled script engine, then the chances are that you know that your Node, know Java, PHP, even .NET Core app is probably going to work out of the box with little to no modifications required. Um, look, as Shai mentioned, there are only a handful of versions supporting Graviton two for MySQL and PostgresQL. You can launch the new instances in the RDS management console, or use the CLI. Upgrading a database instance to Graviton2 is a usual instance type modification that you're hopefully familiar with, You know, using the same steps as any other modification, so console or CLI.
1: The M6G and the R6G database instances are now available for Amazon RDS in the engines we just listed. That's MySQL and Postgres in US East, uh, North Virginia, Ohio, US West, Oregon, uh, Europe, Ireland, Frankfurt, and Asia Pacific, Mumbai, Singapore, Sydney, and Tokyo regions.
0: So listeners, how about if you miss this update, how do you know what instances are available to you short of looking in the console? What you can do is leverage the AWS CLI using the describe-instance-type-offerings. So you you could issue a command like AWS EC2 describe-instance-type-offerings. This will return a paginated JSON output of all instance types offerings, which you can filter by location, you know, region or availability zone. And if no location is specified, the instance types offered in the current region are returned.
1: So so you can even take this uh, further and run a diff between the JSON output compared to a previous run. And if there's a Delta, you can then drop a message somewhere and then do something with a notification, maybe like rebuild your golden image. Uh, being aware of what's on offer is really important in building the co- the most cost-effective and performant architecture of your applications. Um, lastly, Shane, one pretty big announcement here is a new instance type of T4G. So the T-series is our burstable general-purpose instances, and we now have the T4G joining the fold. Like the previous announcements, the same Graviton-based CPUs get you a baseline level of CPU performance with the ability to burst CPU usage at any time for as long as requ- what's required, for as long as required, the T4g provides a 40% better price performance over the T3 instances, and all customers, not just those who are new, can receive a free trial on the T4g with the T4g micro instance size.
0: Yeah, so that's two vCPUs, one gig of RAM, and that free trial goes till December 31st of 2020, and it's 750 hours of usage. They're available in seven sizes, providing up to eight vCPUs, five gigabits of networking bandwidth, and two thousand seven hundred eighty megabits per second of EBS bandwidth, which really makes them a very usable building block. Given you know the price to performance ratio, available in almost all regions. Actually, um, we're not going to list these. I'll let you listeners leverage a tip we just shared with you, so you can extract that information yourself.
1: Yeah. So let's let's go into storage. This is actually one of my favorite areas of enterprise tech as a whole, and I, I could really spend all day here. And we really have uh, three storage updates for today. And so really before I geek out here, uh, why don't you kick us off with an update up for our Storage Gateway, Shane?
0: Yeah, Storage Gateway, uh, something I've used in the past, not so much these days. Uh, but look, you can now read directly from Amazon S3, providing you four times faster access to your data managed through the gateway. So with this launch, you can read files stored in Amazon S3 through file gateway of up to four gigabits per second, providing you faster on-premise access to data stored in AWS. So that means I don't need to use TNT drive. No, we don't. Okay. So look... If you're not familiar with Storage Gateway, it's a hybrid cloud storage service that provides on-premise applications access to virtually unlimited storage in AWS using common storage protocols like, you know, your SMBs, your NFS, etc., that you know you're using with your on-premise systems today. You can use a service for backing up and archiving data to AWS. You know, a common uh, usage here is using Storage Gateway in a VTL mode. So that's a virtual tape library. You can use it for for providing on-premise file shares backed by storage. You know, maybe you've run out of space on-premise. And providing on-premise applications, low latency access into cloud data. Oh, man, you you brought
1: tape libraries. I think I could have stories and we could probably spend days and days talking about tape libraries uh so yeah so I, it's not often i'm gonna get to geek out too much on the storage chain, um and, and this is really exciting for me uh, but but one of the things that one of the announcements that's really exciting that we have um particularly for enterprise backups for customers that are using tags to manage their adbs resources um, is AWS backup will now automatically copy tags from nested EBS volumes to your ec2 recovery points so this will enable you to search Uh, for source source resources or conduct billing reviews for your backups using those tags. I really highly suggest that customers read the AWS tagging strategies for those best tagging practices. Um, So that is actually another AWS Backup announcement here and and I'm so excited for this one too. Um, This is specific to Microsoft workloads running on EC2 instances. So AWS Backup now offers app consistent backups for Microsoft workloads by leveraging the Microsoft built-in volume shadow copy services. You can now schedule application consistent backups, define their lifecycle policies and perform consistent restores with AWS backup.
0: Yeah, finally, it's uh, crash consistent here. Uh, look, you know backups typically something that doesn't get me that excited, but I will say you know exciting stuff for those who love their backups, particularly you know if you're a Microsoft user here, you know being able to perform crash consistent you know VSS style backups, you know really important here. And I know you do Shy. Oh, yeah. Love this stuff. So let's move on to streaming before, you know, we lose you in the backup world. Fair enough. <laughs> okay. So look, we are a platform of choice and many offerings from the Apache Foundation are incredibly popular. You know, customers love and use a lot of these offerings from, you know, traditional Apache web server through to Airflow. And today I want to touch on Apache Flink being licensed under the apache foundation it's an open source unified stream processing and batch processing framework you know it's written in java and scala and flink executes arbitrary data flow programs in a data parallel and pipeline manner now we've run a deep dive episode on messaging episode 57 but to recap you know rather than pushing a message to a message bus which gets consumed by a consumer when you publish a message to a stream or a journal it's there for the data retention period of the stream. Now, I won't go into the merits of streams, but a very useful building block in your architecture. And with this update, Apache Flink Kinesis Consumer now supports enhanced fanout and HTTP2 data retrieval API for Amazon Kinesis data streams. So EFO, so that's the enhanced fanout, allows Kinesis Data Stream consumers to scale by offering each consumer a dedicated read throughput of up to two megabytes per second. The HTTP2 data retrieval API reduces latency, hence you know, HTTP2 and the inherent benefits around that, of data delivery from producers to consumers to 70 milliseconds or better. In combination, these two features allow you to build low latency Apache Flink applications that utilize dedicated throughput being fed from Kinesis data streams.
1: So to get started here, you'll need to use a connector into Kinesis, which can be found in the Apache Maven repository and the
0: GitHub repository for Apache Flink version 1.8. Cool. So the fundamentals of streaming is different. And for old hats like myself, navigating even this preview announcement on Flink doesn't come natively. With what we've announced, there is a new course to help customers, you know, get up to speed in this space. You know, Perhaps I need to take this course myself.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I might take it with you. So yeah, there's actually a, um, so it to, to, to goes without saying, uh, Kafka with is difficult. Um, it can be challenged to architect, a challenge to operate, a challenge really to manage on your own. And MSK helps abstract that level of infrastructure from your uh, your management preview. Uh, but there's still nuances that you require to know and to get up to speed. And so if you navigate to the aws.amazon.com MSK and you click on the resources tab, we now have an MSK masterclass. Uh, and it gives you six hours of hands-on learning and best practices in the most comprehensive content on Amazon MSK. So at a high level, Shane, you're going to learn how to create an Amazon MSK cluster in a dedicated VPC and start producing and consuming Apache Kafka topics. Then you're going to learn how to set up an Amazon RDS Postgres SQL database to send event streams uh, for change data capture or CDC. Then you're going to deploy uh, streams processing application, including using Amazon Kinesis data analytics for Apache Flink. Then you're going to use best, learn about best practices uh, for operating and monitoring uh, MSK. Um, and then finally, you're going to learn about Amazon MSK cluster security and a whole bunch of stuff more. Um, and so if Kafka is in your wheelhouse or it's just an area that you want to learn more about and you, you want to dive into more, uh, maybe it's in the future somewhere, we really encourage you to uh, take a look at this course. A lot of updates there on streaming. So let's segue and chat about LightSail. So for our customers that leverage LightSail for their virtual private server workloads, LightSail now offers only Blueprints, which let you spin up Amazon Linux 2, uh, Ubuntu 20, Windows Server 2019, and Debian 10 in addition to others. For those unfamiliar with LightSail, LightSail bundles include common web applications, storage, and a generous amounts of data transfer. So you have everything that you need to get up and running, all for a fixed monthly price and a few clicks in the console.
0: Yeah, look, it's a really uh, cost-efficient way to get started. You know, 20 30 bucks a month, get yourself a VPS, you know, run that WordPress blog. Um, you know, I've actually set up LightSail VPSs for small businesses, uh, you know, friends, family, etc. Really easy way to get started. So what you're saying here is with this announcement, you can build and run your own application bundles and run them in LightSail just like an AMI or, you know, an Amazon machine image.
1: Yeah, that's correct. So we really love choices at AWS, and this is just another way for customers to easily spin up the web applications uh, when they just want to focus on the
0: app and not the underlying infrastructure. So this speaks to our approach of launching a service and iterating. sales slowly but surely, is adding maturity in this space. Containers, containers, containers. It never stops, nor should it. You know The sheer number of updates around containers continues for a very good reason, which I'm sure we're all aware. You know They're just... Awesome, so plenty of announcements in this space. Prometheus, a popular open source monitoring project, which if you didn't know, has been adopted by the CNCF, so the Cloud Native Compute Foundation, has made its way into CloudWatch. Can we go
1: back to containers containers? I kind of want to hear you say that over and over again until you start sweating. (laughs) (laughs) CloudWatch Container Insights, to be more precise, uh, monitoring Prometheus automates the discovery of Prometheus metrics from containerized systems and workloads. Uh, Discovering Prometheus uh, metrics is supported for both ECS and EKS, as well as hand-rolled Kubernetes clusters in EC2.
0: The Prometheus counter? gauge, and summary metric types are collected. Support for histogram metrics is planned for upcoming releases. For Amazon ECS clusters, both the EC2 and Fargate launch types are supported, but EKS at this stage does not support Fargate launch types. The Container Insights Prometheus solution automatically collects metrics from the following containerized workloads and systems. And you can configure it to collect Prometheus metrics from other containerized services and applications. So out of the box today, it supports AWS AppMesh, Nginx, memkhd, java slash jmx, haproxy, and for ECS clusters, it will support AppMesh and Java jmx. You can adopt Prometheus as an open source and open standard method to ingest custom metrics in CloudWatch. The CloudWatch agent with Prometheus support discovers and collects Prometheus metrics to monitor, troubleshoot, and alarm on application performance degradation and failures faster.
1: This also reduces the number of monitoring tools required to improve observability moving towards that single pane of glass that organizations uh, strive for. Uh, Container Insights Prometheus support involves pay-per-use metrics and logs, including collecting, storing, and analyzing. So please check out the CloudWatch
0: pricing page for more details. So moving on, Shah, EKS would have to be one of the most popular services in the Amazon file huge adoption rates, but given it's not our native container offering, you know, a lot of that tight integration that ECS enjoys out of the box just isn't there. There has been a CNI plugin to overcome some of this, but I'm happy to announce that EKS users can now leverage native EC2 security groups to secure applications with varying network security requirements on shared cluster compute resources. So, you know, going back here, previously, all the pods on a node share the same security group, you know. So that could be lots of different types of applications, you know. While IAM roles for service accounts solves the pod level security challenges at the authentication layer, many organizations' compliance requirements also mandate, you know, network segmentation as an additional defense-in-depth step.
1: Yeah, and you know, you could use um, the Kubernetes network policies to provide an option for controlling network traffic within the cluster, but they do not support um, controlling access to AWS resources outside of the cluster. So now, uh, network security rules that span the pod to pod and the pod to external AWS service traffic can be defined in a single place with EC2 security groups and applied to individual pods and applications with Kubernetes native APIs. This makes it easy to achieve network security compliance in clusters that are shared across multiple uh, teams and applications.
0: Yeah, so look, there's a few gotchas to consider here. So your EKS cluster must be running Kubernetes version 1.17 and the Amazon EKS platform version, EKS 3 or later. Um, You know, spoken about this in the past, um, but, you know, not only for EKS and for our managed services, you know, ensure that if you're using a managed service that you're aware of its support policy. You know, you really don't want to get caught out here. Um, you, You can't use security groups for pods on Kubernetes clusters that you deployed on Amazon EC2, kind of as, you know, as we mentioned before traffic flow to and from pods with associated security groups are not subjected to Calico network policy enforcement and are limited to EC2 security group enforcement only. So there's a bit of community effort underway to remove this limitation. Security groups for pods can't be used with pods deployed to Fargate, mentioned that, Uh, can't be used for Windows nodes, Now, this is supported by most Nitro-based EC2 instance families. So Nitro, you know, our new hypervisor, supported by most families. So the the common ones, you know, the M5, C5, R5, P3, M6G, C6G, and R6G instance families. Uh, But things like T3s, you know, which are Nitro-based, they are not supported. So, you know, check out the fine-grained details there. And SourceNet is disabled for outbound traffic from pods with assigned security groups so that outbound security group rules are applied. And if you are using custom networking and security groups for pods together, the security group specified by security groups f-pods is used instead of the security group specified in the ENI config.
1: You said a few gotchas. Uh, I think that's more than a few. Uh, but with, with that said, uh, nothing is unsurmountable, right? And if security groups are important to you, uh, then you might need to make a few architectural changes. Um, lastly, to round out our container updates, and still with uh, within EKS, it now supports a configurable Kubernetes service IP address range. This enables customers running in a peered or direct connected network environment to ensure that their pods can communicate with external applications on networks outside of their cluster. Super excited yeah. for this one!
0: Actually, you know me too. I'm really excited about this. You know, it may not be such a big thing if you're just starting out. You know, perhaps your EKS pods are an island. But if you need layer three connectivity through to other systems and you've got a large network here, you know, often being able to plan out your address range and network space is really important. So previously, EKS would automatically choose a value for this range based on the primary cider block of the VPC used by the cluster. While this worked for most cases, customers with, you know, VPCs peered to on-premise networks or other VPCs found that EKS chosen Kubernetes service IP address ranges may conflict with other IP ranges, you know, in use across the network, effectively, you know, preventing communication. Can't have the same, you know, IP ranges. So this resulted in pods being able to not be able to communicate with certain applications that reside on peered networks external to the cluster. You know, this could be a really big issue.
1: Yeah, it really can. So now, EKS users can configure the Kubernetes service IP address range on the cluster creation. Customers who operate the cluster in a peered or direct connect network environment can ensure that their pods are able to communicate with external services available across their network. Um, just a few things to point out with this update: as the Cider block, uh, the Cider block must meet the following requirements. Uh, first one, within the within one of the following ranges: a ten zero zero slash eight a 172.16 slash 12, a 192.168 slash 16. It's also got to be between the slash 12 and slash 24 ranges. Uh, Sorry, it's also going to be, it also has to be uh, either a slash 24. uh, Some, the range has to be somewhere between a slash 12 and a slash 24. And it does not overlap with any CIDR block specified in your VPC. We recommend specifying a CIDR block that doesn't overlap with any other network that are in a peered or connected to your VPC. Um, If you don't enable this, Kubernetes assigns a service IP address from either the 10.100 slash 16 or the 172.20 slash 16 insider box.
0: Yeah, I'm reflecting as you read out, you know, those following requirements there. And I thought to myself, you know, kind of makes a lot of sense, but then I also thought once I was dealing with a very large, uh, you know, company, I'm not going to name this company um, that, you know, One of the early days pioneers and all of their servers had publicly, you know, they had, uh, I'm not going to mention what range, but let's just say I'm going to use three for argument's sake. Uh, I'm not trying to pick on this company that is three, Um, but they used public addressing because they owned the, you know, the whole three uh, range slash eight. It was, um, you know, pretty amazing there, but, you know, not too many organizations only probably a handful in the world would uh, run into those issues. Lastly, this is an option only available when you instantiate your cluster. You can only specify a custom sideblock block when you create a cluster and can't change its value once a cluster is created. So Shai, how often are you authoring Lambda functions? Let me ask you.
1: So I find that I commonly reach uh, to Lambda to help with uh, common infrastructure tasks like ensuring resources that are tagged properly or tagging security scans
0: when a new resource is created of a particular type of service. Yeah, cool. Look, I often run a bit of glue like that, but I also like to tell customers, even if it is for a pass-through, take a look at step functions when authoring Lambda. It's like placing a load balancer in front of your compute. And by doing that, it's going to grace you with options to modify your application without affecting users and more.
1: Um, So if you're not familiar with uh, step functions, it orchestrates your Lambda functions into workflows that process data, uh, handle business transactions, or drive long running processes um and as the name implies it really allows you to step through the functions of your application
0: the thing is you know when you're building lambda functions and architecting a state machine With step functions, I know I often spend a lot of time flicking between the two consoles, you know, Lambda and step functions. So with this update, you can now view step function workflows in your Lambda console, making it easier to orchestrate your Lambda functions.
1: This is one of those updates that while isn't adding any functionality particularly, it uh, just makes your life easier when you really have to, and you really have to experience it in the console to appreciate the new workflow.
0: Yeah, look, so in the Lambda console, you can now see step functions on the left-hand side and it will allow you to view your existing state machines. If you need to edit, it's gonna punt you into the Lambda console. And the beauty of this is not just the integration, but it also allows you to identify which Lambda functions are associated to what state machines.
1: Yeah, so now you can visualize where and how your functions are composed into serverless, into serverless workflows without leaving the Lambda console. You can navigate easily between the functions, uh, then the workflows that are involved in and the workflow executions, uh, making it easier to develop your serverless applications. And to get started, open the Step Function State Machines page in Lambda console. Uh, if you are new to Step Functions, select Get Started with the uh, sample Lambda workflow to deploy a sample project. Um, If you have existing state machines with Lambda functions, uh, select that state
0: machine uh, to view an interactive diagram of the workflow. Okay, cool. So let's talk about databases here. So SQL Server Always On, a staple for high availability in the land of Microsoft SQL. Something I've used in anger in the past. Um, You know, I've worked with customers in architecting solutions on AWS around SQL Server.
1: Yeah, it's similar here. I really have a love-hate relationship with, with Always On um, as well. It works well when it's set up and conditions are just right. Um, but if you're not familiar with uh, SQL Server Always On availability groups, it's a high, high availability and disaster recovery solution that provides an enterprise-level alternative uh, to database mirroring. Uh, it was introduced with uh, SQL Server 2012. Uh, Always On availability groups uh, maximize the availability of a set of user database for an enterprise. And an availability group supports a failover environment for a discrete set of user databases. Uh, and these are known as availability databases uh, that will fail over together.
0: Yeah, so look, the availability group supports a set of read-write primary databases and one to eight set of corresponding secondary databases. Optionally, secondary databases can be made available for read-only access and for some backup operations. You know, that's a really cool thing feature there. However, you know, it does impact your licensing uh, ramifications here, so take that to note. Look, the thing is, I've lost touch with SQL personally, and I've never been involved with SQL Server on Linux. So I, I just get excited
1: at the idea here of, of thinking uh, that there's an idea, a possibility of running a Microsoft database on Linux. Um, so yeah. go on, Shane. I, just enlighten me here.
0: Yeah, okay. So look, this announcement is the AWS launch wizard now supports SQL Server always on operation and deployments on Linux. You know, and on paper, it's a pretty simple affair, you know, very similar to, you know, installing any other third-party piece of software, you know, if you're familiar to Linux. You know, it's as simple as, you know, um, you know, doing a Wget to download the package, you know, import the public repository, the GPG keys. Um, you know, do a sudo add apt repository, you know, so register the Microsoft SQL Server Ubuntu repository for SQL Server 2019. And then, you know, sudo apt-get install mssql-server, um, you know, and really is as simple as that. You know, after the package installation finishes, you can run a command, you know, mssql-conf setup, And follow the prompts to set the you know the usual sa password and choose your edition
1: available groups are available on ubuntu server making it easier for you to run sql server workloads on free linux-based operating systems without the need to buy a windows server license the aws launch wizard offers a guided way of sizing configuring and deploying aws resources for third-party applications such as microsoft sql server always on and hana-based SAP systems without the need to manually identify and provision individual AWS resources.
0: Very cool. Um, you know, if someone has actually done this, drops a message, you know, AWS Chat at amazon.com. I would love to hear, you know, your thoughts on this. Okay, so let's pivot towards networking. Now look, I've spoken in the past of the merits of using CloudFront regardless of your architecture. You know, summary, if your application is publicly accessible, CloudFront is going to improve performance, reduce costs, increase your security posture a rather large feature announcement that has been in the works for some time is Origin and Media Shield. I've explained in the past CloudFront's caching layers with edge locations feeding off regional edge caches before accessing the origin. So, you know, request hits an edge location, multiple edge locations connecting to a regional edge case. If it's not found in the regional edge cache, it gets forwarded or gets requested from the origin. Now, if I'm to wheel in my virtual whiteboard, you have edge caches accessing regional edge caches then the origin. If your application is global and your origin is in one region, effectively, you're going to have multiple regional edge caches hitting your origin. So with this feature release, the requests from regional edge caches scattered all around the world are going to be collapsed and made not to the origin, but to the closest regional edge cache to the origin.
1: Yeah, so let's dive into some of the benefits of this. So the first one is going to be a reduction at the origin, which we've seen customers achieve as much as 10 times. Uh, this is a huge win here. If your origin takes time to scale or perhaps it's very costly to run, uh, Origin Shield will tick that box. Remember that all requests um, remember that all requests from all of CloudFront's caching layers to your origin go through Origin Shield, increasing the likelihood of a cache it. So CloudFront can retrieve uh, each object with a single origin request from Origin Shield to your origin, and all the other layers of the CloudFront cache, edge locations and the regional edge caches can retrieve the object from Origin Shield. Uh, Many, many organizations use a multi-CDN strategy, but how do you toggle uh, between multi CDNs, um, you know, are you implementing these in code? Can you talk about that a little more, Shane?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Perhaps you're using round-robin DNS, code toggles, or another load balancing tip. This really can be complex. With this feature, we now allow CDN chaining. So you can now set the origin of your other CDNs to use your CloudFront distribution as your origin, simplifying your architectural topology. Origin Shield can be enabled on new and existing distributions via the console CLI CloudFormation SDKs. Pricing is per 10K request and varies by region. So if you think your use case ticks the boxes that we just listed, it's absolutely worth looking in at detail. All right, I think we've got time for one more quick announcement. EventBridge, we've covered it in anger in the past, but it's a serverless event bus that makes it easy to connect applications together for using data from your own applications, SaaS and AWS services. But, you know, if being candid, it has had an Achilles heel that has stopped many customers adopting. It now, shy supports DLQs, which is awesome. That is dead letter queues.
1: Oh, finally. <laughs> um, this is really going to make those event-driven applications more resilient, more durable to storing your events and queues uh, when that event can be delivered or that target's just not available.
0: Yeah, so, you know, rather than, uh, you know, your... Uh, you know, system on the other end not being available and your message is going into a black hole. These dead letter queues are the standard Amazon SQS queues. So you can now add a DLQ for your target and you can configure custom retry policies on your target to enable fine-grain controls based on the maximum age or the number of retries of the events. You can receive notifications when events are moved to a DLQ, so from a CloudWatch alarm, and you can get started by adding DLQs to your targets when creating or update rules in the console or by using the put targets API. Cost-wise, you only have to pay for SQS. There is no additional cost for EventBridge. Well, Shai, that is it for today. You know, lots of updates covered whilst we catch up on everything. And let me rephrase, catch up with most things in AWS Cloud, because let's face it, there are just too many updates. You know, we covered a plethora of topics today. We started talking about price reductions. Always a good story. Um, you know, with IoT events dropping a mammoth 86%. Connect, our ever popular phone system in the cloud, decrease telephony costs for outbound calls across six countries in Europe. We then moved to compute, you know, more Graviton instances in more regions. Um, 2020 is many things. I'm also calling 2020 the year of ARM. Um, you know, on a side note, RetroPie on Raspberry Pi 4 is just awesome. I digress here, but look, RDS now has Graviton-based instances with MySQL and Aurora, and the T4G has launched. Oh, I, wait, I, I want this to keep going. I, I, it's really too bad. I was hoping that we could digress further and talk about how
1: awesome RetroPie is at an Odroid U4, actually, um, and that I need to set up a CNC mill so I can build a cabinet before we approach the window here. Uh, but yeah, let's let's not digress. Let's get back to the news and wrap this up. It is late here. Uh, so let's save the retro gaming chat for next time, Payne. Uh, So on the storage front, right, we shared updates around uh, crash consistency on EBS snapshots for Windows instances uh, and file gateway performance upgrades. Uh, We talked about Apache Flink. Uh, Kinesis Consumers now supports EFO and HTTP2 data retrieval. We also talked about Lightsail offering an AMI-like experience with OS Blueprints. And CloudWatch has Prometheus support, security groups,
0: and customizable service IP ranges for EKS. Lambda brings support in the console for step functions making that process of authoring state machines and lambda functions even easier there's now a quick start for SQL server always on under linux you know and again listeners I'd love to hear feedback on this so aws tech chat at amazon.com CloudFront has launched Origin Shield, which is another caching layer that collapses requests from edge locations and regional edge caches to the closest regional edge cache to the origin, providing an increased cache hit ratio and reduced load on the origin, a great feature release if your application has a global audience. Lastly, EventBridge now offers DLQ support. Lots of updates there, and I think I'm out of breath shy. Thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me. I mean, this was so fun and super exciting. And it, it's it's always really a challenge, even as an Amazonian, to keep up with all these new announcements. Um, and so I really appreciate our listeners sticking through to the end and, and really drinking alongside that proverbial fire hose with us.
0: Listeners, keep the feedback coming. Drop us an email at awstechchat at, at amazon.com as your messages do drive the direction of this show. Join us again next time on a deep dive episode of your choosing. But until next time, bye for now. Signing off, we really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting awstechchat.com.